This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everyone. Welcome into the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo of MLBPipeline.com as always. And this week, we have a special guest on the podcast Twins top prospect and the number two prospect on our MLB Pipeline Top 100, Byron Buxton of the Minnesota Twins. And Byron, thanks so much for joining us. I know the Twins open up spring training down in Fort Myers in about a week. So I'll start off by asking you, you know, how has the offseason gone and do you feel ready to get things geared up in Fort Myers? Um, yeah, I'm ready. Um, the offseason went really well. Got stronger this year, put on a little bit more weight, um, and just really went out there hard. Got a little taste of the big leagues last year and kind of knew what I needed to work on this offseason, so that made it easier on what I'm supposed to prepare myself to be ready for this offseason. Buck, I know that uh, you know your time in the big leagues was, was a little bit mixed. You said you know the things that, that, that you need to, to work on. What can you take from from the struggles you had during your first go round, uh, and and maybe uh, especially you know you, it looked like things clicked a little bit for you at, at the end. What were the positives you could take from there that that sort of were stuck in your mind as you as you got ready for this year? Um, just towards the end of the season, I got got a little bit more aggressive at the plate. Um, just want to get better pitches, didn't want to get too many pitches in the dirt, and laid off some tough pitches and that's what you got to do once you get up there you got to be be consistent and that's a big part of what I worked on is being consistent being being able to put the ball in play and, and less strikeouts um, and just trying to get on base for my teammates to drive me in. Byron coming into the year what were your expectations? You, you'd had a lot of injury issues the year before. I mean, nothing, uh, you know, kind of a series of injuries, not one injury in particular, and you hadn't played a whole lot and didn't have a lot of experience above high Class A. Going into 2015, did you anticipate getting the call to the big leagues? Did, did you think it was going to happen as quick as it did? How surprised were you when they called you up in mid-June? I was very surprised, especially after the – year I had in 2014, which was a tough year, missed most of the year, and then went to the fall league and got injured again. Um, I pretty much thought I was going to end up way all year just to get more experience and, and get my feet back up under me. But um, I started off slow, slow in double A, and pitching kind of started clicking for me, and I started hitting – balls hard everywhere and got a lot more pitch in the head and just went out there and had fun. Yeah, Jim sort of alluded to the injuries you've had, and none of them are related to each other. You don't have you know, a chronic thing, you know, thing. But when they start to stack up like that, at a certain point, do you, you know, you say you, know, you went to the fall, you got hurt again. 
there's got to be a part of it you, that goes, man, come on again, really? I mean, how frustrating was it to deal with it, knowing that they weren't related to each other, it wasn't something to worry about, but it's just every time it looked like you are starting to get your feet under you, something else happened. Um, yeah, most definitely, especially um, after I had that concussion in 2014, I thought I was going to get to the fall league and have a good fall and go out there and be healthy and got injured again. And I was just like, okay, I got to, got to switch something up. I got to, got to play smarter. Um, can't lose my aggressiveness, but play smarter, know what, when I can dive, when I can't dive, and things like that. Um, just got to know, know the situation that's at hand as well. When you got to the big leagues, Byron, how much of a, a resource was a guy like Torrey Hunter for you? you know, he, he was a guy, you know, very toolsy guy who came up through the minors at a young age with the Twins. Obviously, at that stage of his career, you know, a, a well-traveled veteran who, who'd been through a lot and seen a lot. How much did he help you, and who else uh, on the on the Twins was able to help you make that transition to the big leagues? Um, everybody was a help, but Tory was definitely a big help. Him being in the same situation that I was in, being a center fielder, being young, and he already been there, so he kind of got me through it. Um, the biggest thing he told me was definitely to not take take it for granted, just come out here and have fun every day, um, and everything will, will work out. Just keep playing hard and, and working hard and trying to keep getting better. Because once you stop learning and the game stops, you stop loving the game. And I kind of took that from Tori and just try to take it one day at a time and enjoy it day by day. Uh, Buck, last question for me. You know, last year people t- turned to sort of the year of the rookie. Uh, you still have your rookie status for this year by, I think it's two at-bats, but when you saw guys like Carlos and, and Chris Bryant and these other guys, you know, get to the big leagues and have success, is that something that you just put out of your mind because you're trying to do your own thing, or is it hard not to, you know, put a little extra pressure on yourself to, to keep up with what those guys were able to do so quickly? Um, I think it's a little bit of both because you want to get up there, you see them doing well, you want to be, you want to be doing well, just like they are, and I mean, it it kind of weighs itself out. On the other side, you kind of just want to be your own self because you can't be like those guys. You got to go out there and play your game. You got to know what you can do and can't do, and that's my mentality is to, to just go out there and be myself and don't try to overdo it. Um, just try to do what I can to help this team win. Byron, my last question for me. Obviously, it's very exciting getting up to the big leagues for the first time like you did last year. Well, what is it like to be part of a you know really exciting group of young prospects? I mean, between you and Miguel Sano and Jose Barrios and Max Kepler and Jorge Polanco, I mean, a lot of you guys played together in the minors coming up. You know, the future looks pretty bright for Twins team that just fell a couple games short of the playoffs last year. How exciting is it to be part of that? It's very exciting, um, especially when nobody thought we'd be where we were last year. Um, is incredible. Our prospects that we have and and, and young guys, uh, 
you got good team chemistry, and that's what you need. You got to be able to bond together and, and, and play together as a team, and that's that's really what keeps you going every day, going out there having fun with the guys, um, just being able to play side by side together day in and day out, trying to help us win and get to the postseason. That's all you can ask for. Byron, I have one more question for you before we let you go. Um, you mentioned that going into the season, you kind of expected to spend the whole year in the minors and then you get up to the big leagues, but you also got to play in a pennant race. How much of an advantage does that give you this year, not just having made your major league debut and spent some time in the major leagues, but to have actually played meaningful games in a September? Uh, it means a lot, um, especially for us young guys not – ever been in that situation we got a little little bit of taste of it and i'm sure we're going to be hungry and, and ready to get back to to that spot and, and make it to the postseason this time but um just to be able to get called up and get put in a, put in a situation like that is is amazing um you want to see what you can do in tough situations and and help yourself get better in the long run um, that that definitely challenged me and and I'm very, very hungry to get back there and do better. All right, Byron. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes for us, and, and good luck as you get, get back to work down in Fort Myers getting ready for 2016. Thank you. All right, that was Byron Buxton, Twins' number one prospect, number two on the MLB Pipeline Top 100. And uh, Jim, Jonathan, you know, as we wrap up the interview, anything you guys want to can take away from that or what, what you've learned from – Byron heading into 2016 as opposed to maybe Byron Buxton in, in his first year or two into the minor leagues? I'll start with you, Jonathan. Well, I mean, he, he clearly was overmatched when, when he got to the big leagues. And, uh, you know, he's readily willing to admit that. You know, as he said, he didn't, he didn't expect to get a call up at any point, but there was a need, and that's how it works. And I, I do believe that he's going to use uh, the lessons he learned and the struggles he had uh, to his advantage, you know, assuming that he stays on the field and stays healthy, and I think he's going to put all that behind him. Uh, we're going to start seeing, uh, you know, what all the fuss w was about this year. So, and he just, you know, I saw him at the at the rookie career development program. He just carries himself a, a little bit differently. It's not that he never felt like he belonged, uh, but I definitely got the sense that he he has transformed from sort of teenager to to manhood um even just the way he he talks about what he went through uh he's a little more well-spoken a little more polished i think being around tory hunter certainly helped in, in that regard uh I, you know he just strikes me as a guy who when he gets to fort myers and, and spring training and then into opening day in the 2016 season uh, almost regardless of how he performs i think he's ready he's ready for the big leagues now yeah, you know, he's never going to be Tory Hunter with a microphone. Like, you know, Tory Hunter can can control a room with a microphone. He's a great guy you can listen to. But you definitely notice a difference in Byron Buxton as he's gone through the minors up to the major league level as far as handling the press and all of that. How about you, Jim? How, how have you seen Byron Buxton develop over the last few years? No, I'll second a lot of what Jonathan said. I think he's, you know, from a – a media standpoint, which is less important what he does on the field, he's a lot more comfortable, I think, than he was when he first came into pro ball. And just from a player standpoint, I mean, I, you know, I think we all agree, 
you know, and even Byron was saying he was kind of surprised to get called up as quick as he did. He thought it was going to be more of a 2015 where he got his feet back under him. And, you know, I mean, the guy was 21 years old. It's not like he's been around forever um, after missing most of the previous season. And, well, I think he struggled. And, you know, and, you know, I got Twitter abuse when I had my, my case for Byron Buxton being the number one prospect. Oh, you know, he struck out too much, you know, even though it was a small sample size. I think his struggles last year are, are going to make him that much more ready this year. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, again, I'm not saying this guy's going to be Mike Trout. I will keep banging the drum that this guy does have the best minor league tool since Mike Trout. And while Mike Trout was more advanced as a hitter at the same stage of their careers, Mike Trout struggled when he got to the big leagues ahead of schedule two. So I, I just I think to the people who who look at Byron Buxton and say, geez, this guy's been hurt a lot and he hit two oh nine in the big leagues last year in a short stint, the guy's a much better player than that, and I think he's gonna show that in two thousand sixteen at the major league level. You know, that said, I also don't think it would be the worst thing in the world if he spent a month or, or six weeks in triple A because he's barely played at that level. But we'll see. It seems like he's the front runner to be the center fielder for Minnesota this year. Yeah, and them trading away Aaron Hicks certainly helps the cause as far as him getting that job as well. I think it's remarkable, guys, that Jonathan said it during the interview. He's two at bat shy of losing that rookie eligibility. So day one, as far as whenever he makes his, his season debut, he will lose that eligibility. But he's up for rookie of the year all year, the year after what we called the year of the rookie. So he's certainly going to be, you would think, a front runner when you talk about rookie of the year in 2016. All right, let's move on from, from Byron Buxton. It was great having him on the podcast. But the big news, and we thought it would be news today or, or yesterday, that Lazaro Armenteros would have made up his mind of where he wanted to sign. The young Cuban, 16 years old, he goes by the nickname Lazarito. As we tape this podcast on Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, he is still yet to make up his mind, but, but it's going to be a big deal when he does decide. A lot of teams interested, guys, um, and a lot of teams that kind of break down into, it seems like, two pools. There's the teams like the Cubs and the Dodgers who have already gone over their international signing pool for the 2015-16 year. So by signing him, they'll obviously have to pay all the taxes, but they've already – they're already not eligible to really spend a lot in the coming year. And then there's your other teams like the Braves and, and Phillies and Padres who could have been planning to big, spend big next year, but if they go and sign Lazarito now, they won't be able to. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if one of you is more in touch with that whole situation than the other to kind of explain that better than I just did, but these international bonus pools have really become a fascinating thing from year to year. Jim, I'll throw it out to you. Am I right in that, in how this all shakes down? No, you're right. And I, and I guess, you know, neither Jonathan nor I covers this stuff as diligently as Jesse Sanchez. But, you know, there, there was thought that he was going to pick a team yesterday. That was the, the word. And he is not, at the time we're recording this, this podcast, midday on Thursday. And I kind of took that as a sign that one of the teams that's planning to go crazy in 2016 – uh, maybe is in the driver's seat for him because you, you said it correctly. I mean, you have teams like the Dodgers, the Cubs, the Giants, the Royals. They've all exceeded their bonus pool for the 2015-16 period, and not, it's not so much important. I mean, it will be a lot of money that they would have paid tax, but but one of the other penalties they have is you can't sign a player for more than three hundred thousand dollars in the next two periods, 2016-17 and 2017-18. So if one of those teams is going to sign Lazarito, they're going to have to sign him before July 2. 
Otherwise, they won't be allowed. To. I, I don't think Lazarito is going to sign for three hundred thousand dollars. Um, <laughs> I'll go on a limb there. So, so my my take on it was my my quick take uh, was when he you know we we thought he was going to make a decision, and then nothing got announced. That maybe he's going to one of these. T- it, the international market is so screwy, Tim. I mean, <laughs> one all, all these players are, have agreed to deals well before July two, or, or the vast majority of them. The top players, you know, Jesse will, will do his international preview later this spring. And, you know, he'll write, oh, you know, T-Max is believed to be the front runner. And you'll go back and look, and on his top 30, I'll bet you 29 or 30 of those players signed with a team that Jesse calls the front runner, which is code for has a deal but can't officially announce it yet. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think the fact that Lazarito hasn't signed makes me think that, that you know, and it's weird, too. You, not only do teams lock guys up in advance, but everybody knows which teams are going to go over their pool in the coming year. And I, I think it's the Braves, the Phillies, the Padres. I think maybe the Cardinals have been mentioned. So my guess is if, if this decision was expected this week and the team was not announced, that perhaps he's going to, to one of these teams that is going to go crazy in 2016-17 but has to wait until July 2 to start spending all their money. Jonathan, is there a little risk there in a team, not for him, I mean, he's going to sign this deal at some point with somebody, but as far as a team goes, when you're asking him to wait, it gives kind of more time for someone else to sneak in, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the other scenario that could be delaying this a little bit is, you know, keep in mind that uh, the international market, even with the, the pools, is the ultimate sort of free market exercise. In the draft, you pick a guy and you're the only team that, can negotiate a deal with them and the international market it's you know if it's not all 30 teams uh because of spending limitations or you've already gone over or what have you it's it's still a large number of teams so there, there could be a little bit of a bidding war going on um and yeah i think there is some risk because there have been times in the international market both before and and since they've instituted this uh, this bonus pool system to try to curtail spending uh, that teams have swooped in and players have reneged on what was thought to be a, a, a deal, obviously not a signed contract, uh, to go take a, a better offer. So I think there is some risk there unless the money is so uh, – much more than anything anybody else is offering that, uh, you know, Lazaritos camp wouldn't dare to, to walk away from it. So we'll see. Um, you know, we'll have to see how this plays out. It may just be that, uh, you know, there's a team or two saying, hey, give us an extra day. We want to see if we can come up with something better. Um, and, you know, Jim and I have talked about this before, but, you know, overall just with the, the way this system has worked, I have been surprised how many teams have been so willing to blow past what their limit is supposed to be and, and pay those fees? And, you know, if, if I'm a team that's already gone over, I don't think the Dodgers care if they go over more. You know, they already can't spend more than $300,000 on a player in next year's signing period. So why not just keep going if they feel that he's that special of a talent? Yeah, it seems yeah. like – go ahead, Jim. I was going to say, you know, just piggyback on what Jonathan said, I mean, you just factor in the tax penalty as part of the cost of doing business. I mean, if you didn't have the tax penalty, then Yohan Mankata probably gets a $63 million deal with the Red Sox last year instead of 31 and a half. It's just the cost of doing business. And I just think with the restrictions, 
you know, the draft penalties are much more prohibitive. You know, internationally, okay, you can't sign a player for more than $300,000 for two periods if you go way over your pool. But if you load up and, say, get three pools worth of talent in one year by, by you know, really going all in or, or you get a really elite-level player, it's worth it. And teams are willing to do that because the international penalties aren't that much. In the draft, if you were to go 15% over your bonus pool, and some teams have pools around 4 or $5 million, so, I mean, that's only – you know, that's not even a million dollars over your pool. You lose two first-round picks, and I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a symptom of the way the rules are constructed right now. There are teams that can't spend nearly as much as they want to on the draft, and they're going to go spend that money internationally. And I'll be really surprised. Um, I'm not going to claim I have my ear to the ground with, with the new CBA negotiations, but in the last CBA Major League Baseball, the commissioner's office, ownership really wanted to have greater control over the draft and limit spending. And that's not a hot-button issue for the union. The, the drafted players aren't members of the union. The union got some other things they wanted, and they gave up the amateur draft, uh, which I, I wish at times the union would remember that they agreed to the horrible 40% rule for injured players that, that Tony Clark got all upset about with Brady Aiken, but that's a whole other story. But the union did sign off on all that, and I do think what we're going to see happen is I th- I, there's no way that MLB wanted teams to just be totally ignoring their bonus pool or, you know, I mean, there's, there's tens of millions of dollars. There may even be more than $100 million in tax penalties teams have paid, which nobody anticipated. I'd love to know who gets that money. Um, I'll take some of that if, if they're handing it out. <laughs> but I think we're going to see a similar scenario. I think MLB is going to want to curtail the, the out-of-control international spending, or at least out-of-control from MLB's perspective, and I think they can give the union something in return to, to get an international draft. You know, I mean, we, we, you can shoot. I mean, one of the hot topics right now, I mean, it's kind of a slow period for baseball, is the lack of, of offers for guys like Ian Desmond and Dexter Fowler and Giovanni Gallardo, although I guess Gallardo is close to deal with the Orioles because they're tied into free agent compensation. Well, you could eliminate free agent compensation, or you could you know, basically change it to be something that would be, you know, the, the players that, you know, feel wouldn't harm uh, the ability of a handful of guys each year who get kind of caught in limbo. You could do that and a couple other things, and I, I would bet the union would say, okay, you know, we'll agree to international draft. I, I think it's going to happen as part of the next CBA. Yeah, I think certainly something's going to change there because the teams are still spending. It just seems like in the international, they just spend every three years instead of every year, and then they have to wait two years and then get back in on it. All right, let's talk about Lazarito, the player, though. We've broken down really this whole situation of of where he'll end up and, and what it's going to, to cost and all that. But how good a player is this young Cuban? He's 6'2", 205. Sounds more like an a NFL running back than a baseball player. But, Jonathan, I'll start with you. From what you've heard for a 16-year-old, how does he stack up to, to other international players and other prospects? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's up there. I mean, I, I think Jesse had him at number eight. Uh, on, you know, split him in at number eight on, on that international top 30 once he, he became uh, available and probably could make an argument that he should be higher. Just in terms of raw tools, you know, everything that I've seen, uh, he's as good as they come. And you mentioned, you know, height and weight. He, he, he kind of looks like a man already. Uh, you know, and he's only 16, uh, so who knows what he's going to end up becoming, you know, or, or being once he, he reaches that sort of full maturation. But, uh, you, know, you know, people are used to Cubans coming out who are a little bit older, maybe a little closer to the big leagues, uh, you know, but now, you know, 
Jim mentioned Yohan Mankata, and now Lazarito is a is a younger guy, um, so you know who's a, much further away. Uh, if all those raw tools, you know, are playable, we're talking about a really exciting elite level player. Uh, one of the things that becomes difficult uh, with a player like him is you know so he was seen in the 15 and under tournament. And then when all these decisions are being made, it's really just mostly private workouts and, and things of that nature, and, and teams have not seen him play a whole lot of games. Uh, so you're trying to project the tools based on, on workouts, which makes it a little more challenging and maybe a little bit more risky. Yeah, and this guy could put on a show and a workout. I mean, he's got big-time big, big time power. I mean, he's, what, 16 years old. He's already 6'2", 205. Um, he can throw. He's got plus arm strength. He's a he's a solid runner. I think he, you know, you hear different things. I mean, the hype train on these guys goes all over the place. You know, I think he sounds like from from other reports I've read that he might be more of a right fielder than a center fielder, but he really fits that right field profile. And I think just as a a point of comparison, uh, you know, I did our Blue Jays top thirty list at mid season. I updated it. I'm not updating it now. As we're we're working on the current uh, revamp of all our top thirty list, and I had Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who was the top, you know, I think corner outfielder, uh, you know, on that international amateur market last year. And I think they're similar, but Lazarito is a better all around athlete. Um, you know, with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., he can really hit. But he might be an all-bat guy. You know, Lazarito, you know, has a chance to really hit as well and play a good right field with, with a strong arm. So, if you were just comparing the two of them, I think you would take Lazarito and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. got 3.9 million dollars last year. It's really interesting stuff, guys, and and a lot of hype for a 16-year-old kid who we're not going to see in the major leagues if if he gets to the major leagues to, for four, five, six maybe years. So definitely interesting and, and something we'll be talking about. A player I'm sure we'll be talking about for, for many years to come. All right. Uh, I wanted to end the podcast today. It's been a, a song, It's become a somber week here at MLB.com. Tom Singer passed away on Monday. He was 67 years old. Tom worked here at MLB.com. I'm sure people out there have read many, many of his stories. He was here for 15 years, basically since the beginning he was a beat writer for the Angels, for the Pirates. He was also a national reporter. Uh, guys, I always hoped in spring training that I would get assigned to the Pirates because that was one of the chances I would get to run into Tom Singer because he was just a unique guy, a funny guy, very warm, always had, had a good story, could always give you great insight into a team. Jonathan, he lived in Pittsburgh, obviously, for years. He grew up there but then covered the Pirates for years, and you're in Pittsburgh, so I know you knew him well. What do you remember about, about Tom Singer and what we'll miss about him? Yeah, I, uh, I actually just read this morning in the really nice obituary that the Post-Gazette wrote about him that he, uh, the, the school, the elementary school that he went to uh, is where my kids went for elementary school and my son went for middle school. Uh, and he, uh, he had told a story about how he walked home from Colfax Elementary School uh, to watch game seven of the world series in 1960 um, and saw, you know, Bill Mazeroski's Homer and that it wasn't the Homer that uh, changed, uh, changed his life. It was the city's reaction to it. And that kind of ignited his passion for baseball. And uh, uh, that passion, that flame did not go out 
you know, uh, and, until he, he left us. And I think that's what stands out. He, yeah, using the term unique uh, is the best way to de- describe Tom. He, um, you, you know, I, I, I wrote this yesterday briefly just in, in sort of sharing memories with some of our coworkers. But, you know, there's so many people who like to fancy themselves as uh, people who are, who are original or march to uh, beat of a different drummer. Um, but few really, I think, actually do. Uh, and Tom did that without trying. It's just who he was. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know that anyone loved his job and loved covering baseball and covering baseball for MLB.com more than, than Tom did. Uh, and, you know, his, his stories are, are legendary. Uh, if you go back and read any of his game stories, they don't read like a lot of standard beat writer game stories. He would always find some interesting wrinkle uh, and some overly complicated lead to, to, to get to his point of view. Um, but it all, you know, it all came from such a wonderfully warm place, uh, both in terms of how he treated the game and how he treated the, the people that he, he worked with and for. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's what will stick out to me. That, that and the shoes. Um, the shoes were he, – he, the shoes that Tom wore to, to the ballpark on any given day uh, were something else. So I think the, those are the things that really uh, stick out in my mind right now. Yeah, and I did not know Tom as well. I'm fairly new to MLB.com. Uh, came uh, came aboard in September 2013, but I would always run into Tom in the Arizona Fall League. And, and you know, I, I tend, when I'm in the Fall League, I'm running around doing and doing six different things. And, and it seemed like Tom, whenever Tom was at the ballpark, he'd always come find me. And, and, and you know, it, you could just tell how much the guy loved being at the ballpark and, and how much he loved baseball. I remember being at the – at the Fall Stars game uh, this uh, this past November, and uh, after the game, uh, uh, Tom was like, "Man, you know, Shamanai's slider looked really good tonight." Yeah, he was excited. I mean, I don't know how many games Tom had covered, uh, but you know, thousands, and he he was all pumped up about you know Shamanai had four strikeouts, I think, in two innings, and and then you know Jason Ratliff, the the editor that Jonathan and I work with most closely at MLBPipeline.com was telling the story yesterday that I think a week after that was the military appreciation game uh, in um, Arizona. And I think for whatever reason, whoever was supposed to cover it fell through. So, so Jason, at the last second, was trying to find somebody who could cover the game. And, you know, he asked Tom because Tom lived out there. And, again, I mean, I'll say this. Tom loved baseball because, you know, I've covered – I've probably spent, you know, six weeks the last two years in Arizona Fall League, the last two seasons – and I don't see a whole lot of our beat reporters out there, Jonathan, necessarily. You know, there are some, but not, not all of them are looking to come to the ballpark after, you know, six more, you know, counting spring training, seven, right, eight months, you know, covering the team. And, and uh, Jason asked Tom, you know, hey, you know, short notice, you know, we'd be, you know, could you cover this game? We're kind of stuck. And, and Tom told Jason, hey, I'd be happy to do it. You know, baseball, you know, being at a baseball game is better than being anywhere else. So he was a, a team player. Uh, who, who just, you know, like I said, that the thing stood out to me was how much after however many years he'd covered baseball, and it was a lot of years, he, he still loved coming to the ballpark and, and, you know, looked forward to what he might see at the Diamond that day. Absolutely. Tom Singer will certainly be missed here at MLB.com and really around the game of baseball. That's going to do it for another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayu, thank you so much for joining us. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.